1: to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now here's your host, Sharon Kleina.
2: I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Power of Water and Water Life Science. I'm Sharon Kleina. Today we have a very exciting show. I'm very pleased to say that Dr. Dwayne Cecil is going to be back on again. And we're going to discuss Mars. And we're also going to talk about what's going on in Paris with the climate change uh, conference going on. But before we talk to Dr. Cecil, I always have to remind you why I have this show. It's sponsored by Biologic Aqua Research Center, Water Life Science, which I am the founder. And for all these years that we've been coming on with our show and the most wonderful guests on the whole planet Earth that I could have to discuss about water and the problems in the, with the crisis, your better understanding of why water is so important to you as a person and life for eternity for the planet to, to be here forever, but also your nutrition, your daily health, and, and, and understanding what your body is living with is the water. And this is what it's all about. We're living in an atmosphere. And that water vapor, then that invisible water in the atmosphere, is what keeps you alive once you're born. You're swimming in it all day long to breathe, to be able to, your body, to have the absorption from the air of water vapor. That's what keeps you alive. That's what keeps plants alive. That's what keeps earth alive. When the droplet of rain comes down, have you ever heard that when the rain is coming down, the vapor has been changed? But once the drain, rain stops, the vapor is back to, to the way it was in the atmosphere. It absorbs while it is in the atmosphere and no raining. Your body, from the moment you were born, you left your pocket of water in your mother's a little tummy and you came into the water to live in the vapor. You probably were wondering how you could live in water for all those months and then come to the air you're living in. It's because of the water vapor. I know. Many people have never been told that. Never, and it, it, it is a fact. It is a fact that that's what keeps you alive from, from the moment to your passing. If you're over-evaporating water out of your body, it's called dehydration. And the body is carrying all this water in each of your organisms. The surface of the eye is 99% water connected to the brain. The brain is 80 to 85% water. When you're born and that moment your eye opened, that eyelid opened, it began it began to live with the water vapor to give it the energy electrolytically for the eye to ha- be able to have vision it's it's electrolytic it's the lens of your eye it's ninety nine percent water now if you personally do not get enough absorption and supplement from the water vapor, your brain will go on overload to give it the backup that you need. Always remember that. The water vapor in the air is what is absorbing for the whole body to be able through the skin and live with electrolytic like a battery charges. Now the battery would not charge unless there was water vapor in the air. Earth would not be breathing and living. There would be no water if there wasn't water vapor in the air always remember that that earth had the water vapor for billions of years before the droplet came out of the vapor to come down as rain for you to have water on the planet this is your life this is how important it is to for existence of all life to exist Now we've been hearing about Mars and Dr. Cecil and I will be talking about it. Mars, they believe, at one time had water, but it doesn't today. Remember, you are very important to this planet. Each individual person is very important to the planet. How you live your life, how you take care of your health. But the mission should be, a network of people with pilgrimage, that water life science is very important to our everyday life all over the planet. Not just in one spot, everywhere. We must live in this together. It has to be a family of a planet with water. Because that water must last forever eternity, for Earth to be here, for the generations to come forever. I think it's time we get back to the word eternity, the planet. Your lungs are 75 to 80% water. Skin is 70 to 75% water. Your blood is 50%. We could go on and on. What has happened? What is your life? Each organ has enough water, lots of water, for you to maintain to live with your other organs, to be able to electrolytically live with the water vapor in the air. Now, as I've always said... Breathing as an exercise is vital. You need to learn to breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. In through the nose or out through the nose. Learn to breathe. Two, drink 8 to 10 glasses of water a day and always drink them as a full glass. If it's cold outside, drink as warm as you can handle it, a full glass of water each time. Nutrition to digest is vital so you don't over-evaporate your water loss to dehydration. Eat the proper food. And as you're learning, sugar is going to be your enemy. Have moderate, a little bit of sugar, but not a lot of sugar. Number four, moderate exercise. If you're an athlete, learn in between to moderate yourself. Five, Sleeping is vital like the planet. Rejuvenate your body with sleeping. It is vital. Don't go to sleep. Just put your head on the pillow when you think it's nature's way. We have to learn how to sleep. As you learned how to breathe, we learned how to drink water, we learned how to eat food, we learned our moderate exercise, and we're learning how to sleep. It it, it can be done. It's exciting. Every day. It's a new day. I need you to know, to look up some things. That Did you know that in Iran, they've been having a water crisis for many, many years? In Iran. Iran has been in a water crisis for the past 16 years. Just two years ago, a study by the World Resource Institute ranked Iran as the world's 24th worst most water-stressed nation. The population of Iran has doubled over the last 40 years and increased water shortage combined with ongoing drought led by Iranian scientists who have been having the nuclear project going on using enormous amounts of water. Around the world, it's in a crisis. They're saying that California and the United States is... Is bigger than that. The United States is having water crisis. Other countries are having a water crisis. Why aren't they talking about that as a climate change? I am I am really upset that they call it climate change when we should be discussing a world water crisis for the planet Earth and the family of the planet living together, so different countries don't become distinct distinct because they don't have any water anymore? The world water wars that can be happening in tribes and countries and cities and states will be beyond your imagination. Can we stop and think about the children of the world coming, uh, of the future that they know we all cared? It's the water first. It's what keeps you alive. It's what keeps the plants alive. Around the world we have a world population of people. It grew by 1,595,494 people in just one or two weeks ago, excuse me. We have on the planet Earth today 7,384,536,596 people who have to have water, and that's not counting our plants, our animals, and the earth's surface and its life and its atmosphere. We're all in this together. It's the water. Nothing is more important than the water. It's just startling of what's happened here. We forgot about it. You know, shouldn't we be ashamed of ourselves to say it's a climate change? climate change shouldn't we be ashamed of ourselves saying that wars that we know are going on because of water where where are we today not to come to conclusions of what is the truth not being dishonest and pandering to people about what is really happening it's the water it's vital to every day life for eternity we need to make it the priority, and that's what that sh- this show is doing with Water Life Science. Well, today we have uh, Dr. Dwayne Cecil, who's going to be with us, and I'm excited about that, but first we'll listen to our sponsor, Biologic Aqua Research Center, Water Life Science, and the product, Nature's Tears I Mist, with just a mist. is launching in China here in 2016 to supplement the atmosphere that is happening in China and around the world to supplement the eyes. The eyes must maintain that 99% water. I go through one a week of Nature's Tears Eye Mist to supplement my eyes because even though I live in Oregon and the atmosphere seems to be healthy enough, I find the indoor conditions, sitting at a desk, running a research center, and all the things I do cause evaporation, even more so, more dehydration. With just a supplement of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, I feel better and I know my eyes are healthier. We'll listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, with just a mist, and we'll be right back with Dr. Cecil.
0: Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Become
1: our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to Sharon Hour at Yahoo.com. That's Sharon Hour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program.
2: I want to introduce you to Dr. Twain Cecil. He's the Principal Scientist for Sustainable Earth Observation Systems. He's in Waynesville, North Carolina, Sustainable Earth Observation Systems is an aerospace application consulting firm formed in 2015. He is also the program manager on, on the science and technology support contract, uh, on contract with NOAA National Centers for Environmental Information. He's been with NASA. He's been a consultant around the world for many of the most prestigious research centers in climate, water, and the atmosphere. Are you with us, Dr. Cecil?
3: I'm here. Good morning. Well, thank good you for putting us into your I know,
2: busy schedule. I know we always have a difficult time getting together, so it's nice to have you on today. Um, tell us about what you've been doing, and then we'll get into what we decided the program would be exciting to discuss Mars today.
3: Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, you, you introduced the Sustainable Earth Observation Systems, and it's a small company that I've formed that's really a consultant to the aerospace and the earth science industries across the world, but mainly in the United States, and I have contracts with the International Space Station National Laboratory and with other parts of, of NASA and NOAA and some other small companies that are really looking at ways to to better observe the earth on a more sustainable basis rather than billion-dollar satellite systems. We're, we're going to much smaller systems, CubeSats and small satellites, And to be able to to observe what's happening in our atmosphere on the surface of our Earth and also what's happening to the planet from outside our atmosphere, um, for instance, solar radiation coming in from the sun, and and really to be able to observe that and and to do it on a more efficient scale and, and to continue it for decades to come. So we've really been looking at... Better ways to do that, the technology is, is there now, in uh, small electronical platforms that really uh, give us a, a lot of power to, to look at what's going on in our atmosphere and on the surface of the earth. And it's all for societal benefit. I mean, why are we doing this science and engineering? What, what's the so what of the science and engineering that we're doing and spending so much time on on a global scale? Uh, how are we going to use that information to improve the lives of of folks here on on earth and to sustain our our lifestyles and and um, make it easier for the the growing population? I heard in your introduction, you talked a little bit about the the growing population that as we 've talked many times before, that really is the source of of all the things that are happening with our natural resources and water being the top of the list
2: you know something and, you need to explain is the smaller systems of what the power of that's going to be to get more detail. Uh, could you explain that to the audience about what some of those systems are, uh, are so they understand it? Because they're looking at you go off with shuttles and you sit on wherever when you get there and they're studying, but your system sounds like it's more powerful than just going out to the solar system and sitting out there, bringing in uh, more, inf- a lot of information. Your system sounds like it's zeroing
3: in. Right. And, and Am so, I wrong? No, no. You're 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 real close to to being right on the small sats and cubesats. Um, the analogy that's been used is most of your listeners probably are familiar with beanie babies. And the box that Beanie Babies came in, about the size of that box, is maybe a little bit larger. We're talking about satellites that size and putting up constellations of them of up to 60 satellites that are orbiting the Earth in low-Earth orbit about 200 miles above the Earth's surface. And large constellations of these small satellites that are taking measurements that look at the ground or look at the atmosphere, in meter resolution, which is about three feet, and doing it about every half hour. And so compare that to the, to the billion-dollar larger satellites that we have now, like Landsat, which NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey fly and operate, and that's nearly a billion-dollar satellite. It has a return path of every 16 days that it can image an area on the Earth's surface as compared to every half hour making measurements. And they're much uh, much less expensive to build, much less oh. expensive to launch and to operate. Mm-hmm. And we still get the kinds of measurements and the observations that we're after. Now, we're not there on everything that NASA and, and NOAA and USGS in this country with the large satellites. We, we're still a ways away with the smaller satellites. But we're, it's called disruptive technology. It really is changing the satellite industry and the aerospace industry. And so it's it's more sustainable. It doesn't take as the large rockets to to get these into orbit. As a matter of fact, these small cube sats and small satellites I say sats when I say sats, that's satellites. So the cube satellites and the small satellites can be launched from the International Space Station. Uh-huh. So it's it's you know when you when you have a supply rocket that goes to the International Space Station, it can have many of these smaller satellites on it, and they can be right. launched right off the space station. So it's, it's more sustainable, it's much more efficient, and the, the technology is just exploding. It's like your, your handheld phone is much more powerful than, than the original computers, and so the same thing's happening with satellite technology, and we're getting smaller and more efficient.
2: Can you imagine what you just said, the handheld phone. Have you ever texted somebody sitting in another country and they text you right back?
3: It's pretty amazing.
2: It's just amazing um, yeah. what is happening there with the airwaves.
3: It is indeed.
2: Now and I'm so, gonna ask you one. Uh, if you took all the all the atmosphere, the water in the atmosphere away and it begins to deplete, what would happen to those airwaves?
3: You take all the of- all the moisture and the, the water vapor out of the atmosphere and we'll we'll be just like mars
2: and there would you know, be no there would the be, be no uh, be uh, atm- be, there would be no electrodatic communications at all
3: well and there'd be no life as as we know it on this planet right. if, if you take now, the moisture if, away if the
2: atmosphere begins to deplete let's say it begins to be, uh, diminish because it's being utilized for all this technology for all the things you can imagine Dr. C, so what would be happening in time, let's say a thousand years from now, if all of this technology is utilizing the water vapor in the atmosphere, could there become eventually a, a, a slow depletion of what, how much water is necessary in the water vapor?
3: Well, it's, it's really, we've talked about this before too, Sharon, it's really a, an energy balance equation in the atmosphere, right. and so so as you, as you warm things up or cool things down, the... the the earth moves the balance around by storms and by winds. And so if we're depleting the atmosphere of, of moisture, then we'll be taking more from the oceans. Is mm-hmm. it a large amount? Probably not uh, for what you're talking about. However, one of the things that I didn't hear you talk about in your introduction was, was virtual water. And what I mean by that is you talked a little bit about the water that we're not thinking about using that that. We use in large amounts, relatively large amounts. I'll give you an example. To produce a pound of beef takes about on the order of 1,800 gallons of water. Now, the virtual water that's in that production is not just the water to, to feed the cow, but to clean up after the cow, to grow the crops for the feed, to move the beef around. 1,800 gallons to produce one pound of beef. So yeah. as the world's population grows and we have to increase food production, look what that does to mm-hmm. the water supply. It's huge, huge impact. And these calculations have been done for all kinds of things, from, from a pound of rice compared to a pound of flour, a, right. a cup of tea, per, per, uh, compared to a cup of coffee. I mean it's mm-hmm. the, the virtual water that we don't think about that it takes to produce our food stocks. is a now, tremendous can you imagine amount of water.
2: laundry showers things that are hygiene
3: exactly, conscious. exactly. Um, it's it's about about 800 gallons of water to pr- produce one cotton shirt one cotton t-shirt yeah 2800 gallons to produce a bed sheet. Mm -hmm. And so we don't think about the water that goes into the manufacture and and our industrial complex and the development of nations, and and that relates to what's happening in Paris right now, why why nations are having a really difficult time of agreeing on how we're going to address climate change issues and and what's going on in the atmosphere, because the developing nations want to have those bed sheets and those cotton t-shirts and that pound of ground beef like the developed nations have. You
2: know, Dr. Cecil, I'm going to ask you, and I really want to get on to Mars again, too, but okay. so we'll go back and forth. But, and I really wanted you to carry this today with your directions you thought would have been important to the audience. But why are we calling it climate change?
3: Um, do you think we should be calling it global warming? No. Uh, what do you think we should be calling it?
2: I don't know. I personally, with my studies, have found that water is the issue. But when you discuss global warming or you say climate change, the audience of our planet, the people who elect those officials and give them the money they need to go do what they're doing to study, they don't—they don't, they forget about the water. And to me, water is the climate change.
3: Well, I would—I would maybe say it. A little bit different, but okay. I, I would, I would no, definitely... No, no, I want
2: you to tell me how I should say
3: it. Uh, well, the way that I would say it is that, that in terms of natural resources on this planet to sustain life and sustain lifestyles the way we know them and, and we want to sustain them, water's the top of the list. And energy's got to be right after it, but water <laughs> is definitely the top of the list. But this conference that they're having in Paris is is to address... Um, as, as best we can as a global community, our influence, especially in large cities, uh, 10 million people or more in megacities, in large cities, our influence on changing local weather and regional weather and climate, and then global weather and climate. So that's what they're addressing there. But to me, what we really ought to be addressing, and this comes back to the water resources and the energy needs and industrialization and development, what we ought to be addressing is population Growth on this planet. And we, we, we just don't address that. We don't talk about it. And there's lots of reasons that we don't do that. But as you pointed out in your introduction, I, I rounded your numbers off. But in your introduction, you talked about the world's population right now is about 7.4 billion people. And by 2035, calculations are showing, projections are showing around 9 billion people on this planet. And we can't sustain that kind of a population, we need to, I already talked about it, in the next 15 to 20 years, we need to double our, our water use efficiency, double it in the next 15 to 20 years. And we also, in the next 20 or 25 years, we need to double food production on this planet. We're losing ocean fisheries, we're losing uh, agricultural areas on on the continents to to drought, long-term drought, we're losing it to urban sprawl, we're losing it to development. You know, we, We're not talking about those kinds of issues, we're talking about climate change. Well, to me, because I'm a climate science, scientist, the, the, the climate is really the integrator of all the other things. It affects right. biological systems, ecosystems, water resources, energy resources, populations, where they live, how they live. So it really is the. Why don't integrator. we find
2: a way where people understand it, Doctor? Um, you know, um, you know. I watch people with myself, and I watch and I listen to other people with how some people describe things. People need common sense descriptions. I don't care who you are. You could be a, a surgeon. You could be. Uh, an individual who's teaching a class on this—you need to. Be, there's all these people out there in the world that are, seem to be very intellectual. Then there's other people who work for all kinds of. Uh, of they could be taking the tickets at the movie theater. They need to understand.
3: Yeah, I have sense. to. And we've talked about this before, also, Sharon. That you, you have to put it in the perspective of the audience that you're. Having these conversations with, I had a, a climate change uh, discussion with a with a group of residents here in North Carolina that they live in a four thousand acre preserve. There's a three thousand acres of common ground, a thousand acres that have been developed. And these are multi million dollar homes, and these are very successful people. And when I speak to them about climate change, you, you don't you don't force the science on them. You don't your opinions on them and I try not to do that with anybody, but you try to put it in perspective for them and talk about economic issues and development and and what climate change means to the, to successful development and being a successful uh member of your community and 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 then you have their attention and so you really have to 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 talk to the audience that you're talking with, not talk to but talking with put it in perspective from them. Uh, what, what does it mean in their everyday lives that the population is growing, that water resources are dwindling, that food uh, production needs to be increased? What, what does it mean to them? And put it in context for them. And that's what I try to do most of the time. And uh, just, just put it in oh, context yeah, I'm for I have going the audience. to ask
2: you, when you're talking to people, being conscious of. How you're going to get this to them intellectually or whatever. Can, does your audience feel like they're walking away having really learned something more?
3: Well, I'm, hopefully some of them do. But because you never, sometimes you, you can be too cautious. Well, you can be too cautious. And sometimes you just, and, and as a matter of fact, this audience I was just talking about, these, these very successful individuals that had had very productive lives and been very successful. There was one of the people in the audience that had a long career was a an upper level executive with Exxon, and so throughout the whole discussion, he really was looking for ways to debate with me things that I was saying, and that wasn't where I was going with it and he that's what he wanted to do, so just let him do it but you're not you're you're never going to get everybody that you're having these discussions with to agree with you, and nor should you have everybody agree with you but Hopefully, at least even this guy who came in as a as a skeptic, perhaps he left a little bit thinking okay well we we really can use the science to benefit society and and there's ways that we can do that it's it comes down to communication, and I think that's where you you're what you're getting at here is um, I, I've said before that we as a climate science community have not done a real great job until recently we're getting Better at it, I think. We're not where we need I'm, I'm to be.
2: I'm going yet, to say that too um, because I I find that when you're talking common sense and you're open-minded about where you're coming from about how the planet is living all to, the whole organism of the planet. I know when I speak places, you could hear a pinfall with physicians and scientists and caretakers of elderly. They're just shocked of things that they had forgotten about that hadn't been brought to the head of the class on how we're breathing, drinking water, how vital that is compared to everything else, and the the planet just breathing the water vapor has to keep us alive, and then drinking the adequate water to keep us alive. And they forget about how important that atmosphere is to keeping us alive. But it's keeping all organisms alive inside and out. Um, I know I had a speaking engagement with a group of children in, uh, back east, and you could have heard a pinfall, and they let this simply go half an hour longer because they could see, they felt that the children were listening so closely and asking the right questions. They had never thought about how we're all breathing.
3: Yeah, um, I think that's that's particularly true in in developed nations like the United States. We take it for granted that we hit the light switch, we're going to have lights and 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 heat in our homes. There and we we're go. Have, we have water when we turn the faucet on, and we really take it for granted and we, we forget about it. We, we, well, we don't Doctor, think about you know how they much take water takes. Uh,
2: they, everybody takes for granted how the body is breathing. Sure. You know, you relate to, like I'm in the medical field, so you relate to individuals that the body will not breathe. Your organism, your body will not breathe unless you have that water vapor in the atmosphere and let's pray it's a healthy atmosphere. Um, has technology come along to where... We learn how to supplement that. Yes, it is with what we're doing. But, again, people, when you start getting close to their body and talking to them about their, their own health, all of a sudden they're looking at the atmosphere and the water and everything altogether differently. They, but climate change, the children, if you go into schools and say, well, I'm here discussing climate change, but they better realize that there's more to it because the body has to breathe. Your body, you have to learn how to breathe in and out that atmosphere, and then you have to drink the water, and then, of course, the proper food. But back to uh, what we're trying to educate here and keep people reminded is that uh, we're gonna, we, we could become the Mars, and that's what we're going to talk about here on this next segment, we're going to take a moment, and we'll be right back. And we'll have you teach us about what they were te- teaching us about Mars. And was there once water on Mars? We'll be right back. We'll listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye missed a supplement with tissue culture grade of water to supplement the eyes. As you know, we live in a world where technology has been around now for thousands of years growing for what we need to supplement to make a healthier life. Nature Sears Eye Mist for the surface of the eye is the first supplement worldwide to supplement the surface of your eye because it is 99% water. What is vision impairment? Serious evaporation of water loss causing a dehydration. But this will supplement it. I go through about one a week. Because I do need it. I wouldn't, couldn't live without it. Well, listen to our sponsor, Nature Sears I Missed, with just a mist, and we'll be right back with Dr. Cecil.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to Sharon Hour at Yahoo.com. That's Sharon Hour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Dr. Cecil, we've been hearing a lot about Mars and the water that had been on Mars at one time and uh, the atmosphere around Mars. Teach us a course on what, you, what we need to learn more about Mars.
3: Well, this is a pretty exciting uh, very recent within the last uh, year or two uh, conclusion that scientists have made from observations, again, of, of essentially a satellite around Mars that was launched in, in August of 2005 called, uh, NASA calls it the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It took about seven and a half months to get to Mars and, and orbit, orbits around the planet and there's there's something like five or six uh, satellites and a, and a couple uh, instrument uh, platforms on the surface of Mars that have been taking measurements for some time now. And so uh, we've known for, for a number of years that about four billion years ago or so that Mars had somewhere between six and seven times the amount of water that's, that we can that we suspect is on the planet now. There was a lot more water there. But Mars doesn't have an uh, atmosphere like Earth does, and it doesn't have a magnetic field like Earth does. So the scientists have, have theorized and calculated that, that all of that water that was on Mars has gone into space. Well, a young uh, graduate student at Georgia Tech University in Atlanta uh, took a look at the streaks, in the southern hemisphere of Mars, on steep slopes, there are these discolored streaks. And he theorized that, that they had to be from water running across the surface and minerals evaporating out of the water and causing that discoloration in those streaks. So uh, with this Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter... There's a spectrometer uh, as one of the instruments on board, and they were able to look at the chemical makeup of these streaks, and it turns out that they're calcium perchlorate. And to make calcium perchlorate, you really need water. And so what the theory is now is that there's groundwater on parts of Mars very near the surface, and so that these streaks are being created, this is the hypothesis, that these streaks are being created by water that is very briny because Mars is very cold, much colder Mm. than the surface of the Earth. Mm. But as we all know, uh, it's very difficult Uh. to to freeze (laughs) salty water. So this is very, very briny water that will seep from the groundwater on a seasonal basis, like a spring or a fall, and run across these steep valley surfaces on, on the surface of Mars. Now... They've looked at, they've had the the Mars orbiter look at some 240 or 250 possible sites that it could be, these streaks could be from water, and it turns out that only 13 or 14 of those 200 and some odd sites they've looked at uh, have the chemical, the the residue and the coloration of these streaks has the chemical makeup that involves transport by water. So... Um, in fact, there is, it, at least it looks now like there is water below the surface of the planet. Okay. And that it does seep out on the surface and, and leave these streaks of, of uh, calcium perchlorate as the water evaporates and, and these sediments come out and discolor and leave these streaks on the surface of the planet. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, with the so, atmosphere, there's been atmosphere around the planet Mars for how long? Water and vapor.
3: Um, well, there's, there's, not much, there's not much atmosphere like we know it. There's, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of atmosphere there. Um, but there is, there is water vapor. We are making measurements of, of temperature, um, mm-hmm. also making measurements of, of how much water vapor is there and how much dust. And that's, that's why when you see Mars with the naked eye, it appears to be red because most of the surface deposits on Mars have iron in them. Mm-hmm. And as the iron oxidizes it, you get that red color and as the winds blow and there's really strong winds on Mars you get these dust storms and that's why it appears to be a, why it's called the red planet and it appears red with a naked eye when you can see it mm-hmm. but there isn't a lot of water vapor there isn't any standing water on the surface of the planet there are some frozen ice caps in the poles of the planet so mm-hmm. we knew that there was some water there we thought it was just all frozen, but it appears that there is actually some real briny, real salty uh, groundwater that that does move from time to time and and comes out on the surface
2: mm-hmm. now uh, d- d- were there any signs that maybe uh billions of years ago there was uh, m- more water than this there now oh
3: well, yeah yeah and, and I started this conversation with the, that the calculations show that. About four or four and a half billion years ago, there was somewhere on the order between five and ten times more water on that planet than there is there now. So there mm-hmm. probably was some standing water in certain mm-hmm. parts of the planet at certain times of the year. So
2: do you can believe that, prior to that, that there was life on, on the planet?
3: Well, that's the question. So is that enough water to, to support life as we know it and in the, in the conditions that Mars also has a much much colder temperatures and much hotter temperatures than we have here on the Earth, and doesn't have the the oxygen-rich atmosphere that we have here. And I've I've used this analogy before when we've talked about this, Sharon. That if the Earth was a basketball, if our planet was the size of a basketball, our atmosphere that supports life as we know it and protects us as we know it from the rest of the solar system, from from Impinges and impacts on the rest of the solar system. that atmosphere is a, a piece of paper, a piece of notebook paper stretched over that basketball and that 's the only atmosphere that we have mm-hmm. and that really distinguishes Earth from, from other planets that that we can see and that we 've been able to measure and, and that we, we know about. that really distinguishes us from those other planets is the water on the surface of our planet and our atmosphere and the water vapor that 's in our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Mars doesn't have that.
2: So, um, but I'm going back even billions and billions of years before the last four billion. Do you think that it was just diminishing as time went by, like this predicted on our planet? In time, if we're not careful and start getting better
3: technology. Well, again, we've got a a magnetic, a global magnetic field. Mars doesn't have that, Mm -hmm. and that. That helps us explain what that means ma- to the audience. It would not. Well, what that means that. is it it really helps us maintain our atmosphere. It's one of the things that helps us maintain the atmosphere. And so Mars doesn't have that. It doesn't. It doesn't have when you use the compass and it, it points at the the magnetic north pole. That wouldn't happen on Mars. Mm-hmm. And so whatever atmosphere it had after formation. Uh, it's it's as we know it, and as we know life, and as as the life that we know needs the atmosphere to support it, Mars may have had that really early on in its formation, but it doesn't have that now. That doesn't mean that there isn't life on that planet, and couldn't have been life on that planet. It, it could be very different than, than life mm-hmm. as we know it, mm-hmm. because there has been water on there, and... and Again, as far as we know, that is the essential building block for life, is, is right. water and, and for and our planet, oxygen as well. So of water in the atmosphere.
2: and then, Right, yeah.
3: right. So and you it, mentioned it, the it, word,
2: it's something that I like to study, as you know, evaporation. Hmm. Um, it, I, I, there's something about that word that was left out in studying evaporation of human life, uh, the depletion of water from birth to the serious de- dehydration effect that causes you to die. Um, and I'm, I always look at Earth to be a duplication of the way we're living with our recycling as a h- human life, the organism of the body of human life. And all, even, I don't care if it's a tree with leaves and all the life on the planet, it has an evaporation. That's why you have your favorite plants. And if you have a snail or a slug or some insect that wants to go and soak out that moisture out of that stem, it can kill the plant. Right. And uh, so when you go out and look at the planet, Earth, for what it has to, what it has to be to sustain itself that water and the atmosphere is so vital to then uh, the climate. Uh, And I look at climate as a temperature change. Am I right or wrong?
3: Um, Well, I think it was Mark Twain that said that um, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. So climate is what, over a number of years, a long period of time, a number of decades, that we we understand what we what our weather's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And the weather is day to day and and can change. We can have extreme events like tornadoes and things like that. And so mm-hmm. that's really on the short term weather is short term climate. And, and so climate's what you expect from your experience and from from the data and from the science and the study and weather's what you really get and and sometimes you you'll get extreme weather events that you wouldn't have predicted Knowing your long-term climate trends. Now, Dr. Siegel, question,
2: does does the water and the atmosphere and the amount of water that's on the surface, fresh water, uh, uh, at that at those locations, does that have any any uh, relationship to the temperature
3: and the oh, air? Absolutely, 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 and, and and we are going to see this winter that the a really. Classic example of of the answer to your question, and it's called El Nino, mm-hmm. and that's where we get very warm sea surface temperatures off of western South America, mm-hmm. and it affects the the air circulation patterns and the precipitation patterns and the temperature mm-hmm. patterns, and uh, it, it leads in you know, all of our long term trends show us that when we have a strong El Nino like right now. We we're measuring strongest El Nino that we've measured on on record, and when we get that, eastern and northern Australia have droughts. Where I live here in North Carolina, uh, the, the models are showing and the predictions are showing that we're going to have cooler temperatures and a lot more precipitation than we usually get, and I live in the Smoky Mountains, so that means snow and ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, places like the southwestern United States, Arizona, California, uh, New Mexico, Nevada, they're going to be less precipitation, higher temperatures. The Pacific Northwest is going to be um, higher temperatures, more precipitation. So, the answer to your question is absolutely. The water temperatures, the sea surface temperatures, are a big driver to global air temperatures and global climate.
2: Now, it would would also let's say, for example, in those areas uh, uh, they they've had a drought. If they had a technology that could, through the many years, it would begin to recycle the water to more water storage on the surface of, that, of the planet at that location. Would that help regulate the temperature uh, differently? Because there was more water. It wasn't all going down into the aquifers or becoming uh, uh, over-evaporating. Would that... With more water on the surface help those temperatures to regulate themselves uh,
3: not necessarily because you know this comes back to some of the debates we have about climate change and and global warming and are we having are we humans having an effect on on the weather and the climate um, It's not just local the the drivers and the impacts locally will change the air temperatures and will change the amount of precipitation available but it's really heavily influenced by the whole global scale. Mm-hmm. So you would have to change something very, very dramatically in a, in a small region to really affect the weather and climate by itself. So, it, it, I mean, it's, I won't say it's impossible, but it, it would be a, have to be a really dramatic change.
2: What about over in the Middle East? You probably heard me because I got a report today before the show about Iran and all the years it's been uh, having water shortages and the seriousness of that future, and that they've been using it for their nuclear technology as much as they could use it. I mean, it's just been depleting. Yet they're over there in the Middle East with all the sand, of which is very lifeless organism, and that causes a, a severe temperature change on the planet too because the longer that's there doesn't that also cause a temperature change because you've got one enormous area of our planet that's mostly sand
3: very true and when you think about what's happening to the the tropical rainforests for instance in in the amazon in brazil mm-hmm. that the the trees are being harvested and they're not being replanted there we go. And, and so that really does affect global And then they don't have the
2: irrigation coming the way they maybe should, and the soil becomes lifeless and turns to sand.
3: And we've we've talked about Saudi Arabia before. It's the largest country on the face of the earth that doesn't have a river. Right. And they just signed. They just signed a 99-year lease with Ethiopia in Africa to grow food for them. Mm -hmm. So they they can't. They've they've used up most of their arable land, Mm -hmm. and they don't have fresh water, and so. Mm-hmm. They have to buy agriculture. They have to buy their food, their food sources. Everything. Yep. But so, they have money because I want they to have ask oil. You,
2: I want to ask you something about, you know, the oil companies. They have done so much exploration around the world. Are they a source of, better, of really good technology also for what's going on beneath the surface with water?
3: They are. They're an excellent source of technology, but here's I the challenge. I've thought of that,
2: doctor, many, many times because people want to uh, intimidate them about uh, oil. And yet, would a p- person stop driving cars? <laughs> uh, would we stop using oil for energy? Whatever. But um, I've often wondered if they would be a source to turn to for enormous amount of wealth of of information and technology with what they've been learning. Is, have, has that been going on? Has there been a coalition to work with that?
3: There has been. I was, two weeks ago, I was in Houston for the first space commercialization conference that NASA's put on. This was the first one. And I, I had the great opportunity to chair a, a panel of, of four different companies plus my company, and I moderated the panel on small satellites and cube satellites and what. This mm-hmm. thing that I called earlier in today's program, this uh, disruptive technology and how it's really changing the industry. Mm-hmm. But there were several sessions. It was a th- two-and-a-half-day, almost three-day conference, and there were several sessions with the the crossover between aerospace industry and, and earth observations and the oil industry. As a matter of fact, there was uh, several executives from companies like Exxon and Shell that, that gave keynote talks to the aerospace industry. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of crossover between those two industries, and but here's Wonderful. the challenge. Wonderful. Most of the information from those large oil companies or any private company is proprietary. Mm-hmm. They don't want to tell you how they know what they know and how they've mm-hmm. been able to be as successful as they are because mm-hmm. it keeps them competitive. So it's it's hard right. to get details out of them,
2: mm-hmm.
3: understandably.
2: Right. Now, the one thing I've looked at California, too, when they started to stop that irrigation to the fields, you can see where California is becoming, the soil is becoming lifeless and it's becoming sand.
3: I just had a debate this morning with a a colleague at the University of Idaho where we were talking about becoming more efficient with our our water usage. And I gave the example earlier uh, in this program about it takes approximately 1,800 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. Mm -hmm. And so we need to become much more efficient. And, And his argument was well, I mean, California is becoming much more efficient, but they're not getting the water where they need to get it. Okay. And they're not doing it in an ethical way. So they're giving it to people that can pay more for it. And so there's that debate as well. That, That's not, uh, yeah. Do you, That's do you, not gonna are help you going to be issue. ethical or are you going yeah. to be efficient?
2: The issue is uh, it has to be uh, um, more objective. That's why they call it ecosystem. Right. I look at ecosystem as a balance balance that has to be there, or it won't well, it won't be workable. Well, we're out of time. I will give you the last minute here uh, to say anything you want to say to your audience.
3: Well, I, I, you know, I'm a big supporter of your show and what you're doing on a global scale, and that I mean, water is the number one resource. We can we can find minerals and we can develop. Uh, Renewable energy sources, which we're doing on a global scale, and but it really comes down to uh, the name of your program. The power of water it really is the one resource that that separates us from planets that we we know and planets that we've studied, and this planet that we're on. It's it's our atmosphere and our water, and it's extremely our important. Don't take it for granted. That that's well, what I would. Thank you your so much. Thank you for her. giving
2: us your time, because I know how busy you are. I've had a real challenge to get to you, but thank you for giving us your time. It sounds like you're on the way to a lot of new exploration. Thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Sharon.
2: Bye. Well, can you imagine how much we've learned today? I want you to know that uh, whenever we have Dr. Cecil on, um, he is, like I said, he's a climatologist, water scientist, and atmospheric scientist. And uh, I really enjoy having him on whenever he can come on because he's so busy. I want to thank you for joining us today. Embrace your life. But also embrace somebody else's miracle along with your miracle. Remember, it's a miracle. But earth whispers, never say goodbye. Leave something of yourself behind for all the generations of the children to know that you cared about life to be for eternity.